Straight PSA, take number one. Watching a helpless child struggle with a drug problem is tragic. It'll do nothing less than tear your heart out. But there are people who can help, and that's why I'm so pleased to talk to you about Straight. Straight helps families cope with and overcome the problems of drug use. Straight also gives young people the opportunity to reclaim lives nearly lost because of drugs. Organizations like Straight give us added strength in waging the war against drugs. And like most wars, we must win it to protect our children. If you suspect your child has a drug problem, get some help. With programs like Straight, a helping hand is available, but the first move is yours. Nineteen seventy eight was the year everything fell apart. A man in Southern California phoned attorney Paul Morantz to report that his wife had been taken by Synanon. Ed Wynn, that's first name Ed, last name Wynn, said his wife had gone to get some treatment for her depression from a local clinic. They'd recommended Synanon. So she'd went to check it out. Within a day she was on the road to Tamales Bay, her hair all gone, and her husband confused. Ed's wife struggled with mental problems, problems that Synanon couldn't fix through attack therapy in the game. But she remained with them, dipping in and out of psychosis for days while being told she couldn't see her husband, and he was being told that he couldn't contact her. She was terrified, her husband was terrified, and only by the maneuverings of Paul Morantz was she able to be released. Morantz promptly sued Synanon for imprisonment of Mrs. Wynn. Synanon lost and was forced to pony out $300,000 was a massive blow to the organization. Synanon was suing Time Magazine over unfavorable coverage, a lawsuit which so engrossed Chuck that he stepped down from the board in order to devote more time to it. In practice, this meant little. He was still paid a massive consultant's salary. He remained living in the plush Synanon facility called Home Base, and his word remained law within the organization. Synanon's legal department swelled with lawyers, they sought to annihilate Synanon's critics in the media by inundating them with lawsuits. The beatings of splittees and opponents increased, too. Although they were never caught, it's very likely that Synanon killed and then hanged the dog of one of the most prominent old-timer splittees right outside his home. More threatening mail was sent out. Teenagers from the punk squad, still fleeing for their lives and sanity, were chased to neighbors' houses by Synanon members who sometimes shot at those ranchers who tried to help the kids. But they were not without allies, although these allies were often as crazy as Synanon. Cesar Chavez, suffering from many of the same megalomaniacal delusions as Chuck, started integrating Synanon members and the game into the United Farm Workers' structure. Using Diedrich's example, he led a reign of terror within his organization, with Dolores Huerta by his side, turning the UFW into something more like a cult than a labor union. Synanon tried to open up an embassy in D.C., ostensibly to promote their charitable arm, and found they could no longer muscle people out and push them around as effectively as they had in the old days. The building they moved into had tenants. When Synanon beat some of those tenants up, they sued Synanon and won. Chuck's unpopularity on Embassy Row freaked him out. He'd been throwing his weight around out west, but D.C. was different. There was also the matter of an ongoing investigation by the local Tamales Bay newspaper, The Point Ray's Light, digging into his finances. So with reporters hot on his heels, Chuck split for Europe with $2 million, landing in Italy. He stayed there with all his family members, all of them working high-paid positions at Synanon and some close friends. To cap it all off, Chuck started drinking in Italy. His daughter, J.D., a Synanon executive, became an expert beer drinker. Synanon's second unbreakable rule had now been broken, once again by the man at the very top. Six months later, the crew returned to the U.S. The Synanon they returned to was unrecognizable from even five or ten years before. 
It had fully transitioned into a self-help commune dedicated to business success mindset. Some Synanon employees now earned a salary, although many still got little more than a meager allowance. On October 9th, 1978, Paul Morantz found himself in a hurry. A former member of Synanon had been beaten badly a few weeks before and was still in the hospital. Paul had purchased a shotgun, had made statements to the press warning Synanon off. He was paranoid about car bombs or shots through the window. But today he was mostly concerned with the start of the World Series, the Dodgers versus the Yankees at Dodger Stadium. Paul lived in L.A., and as he rushed into his house to grab something, he noticed a strange shape in his mailbox. Listen, if you ever see something shaped like a snake, assume it's a snake. Doubly so if you're on the hit list of a violent cult known for taking extraordinary measures against its critics. Paul realized his mistake as the rattlesnake extended itself and sunk its teeth into his wrist. He didn't hear anything. Synanon had taken out the snake's rattles. The only sound was the screaming coming from Paul. While the medics loaded Morantz into the ambulance, one of the attendants asked him, where was the snake? Paul said it was in his mailbox and that Synanon had placed it there. Paul was in the hospital for nine days. The press, previously wary of Synanon after the group's successful lawsuit against the San Francisco Examiner, finally began to investigate the cult. Exposés were run on Synanon's hit list, on their threats to reporters and split ease, and the countless beatings the organization inflicted on critics and anyone who they deemed a threat. Paul Morantz held press conferences from his hospital bed, pointing his finger at Synanon. It was an arresting image, a salacious story, and Synanon was finally in the crosshairs. Paul's neighbor had seen two young men with shaved heads put something into his mailbox and had taken down their license plate number. Police tracked the vehicle to Synanon. Chuck handed over two members of the Imperial Marines. One of them had been a former punk squad member and was the son of prominent big band leader Stan Kenton. The police raided Synanon's facilities and carted away boxes of tapes, memos, and tranches of documents. The thing is, Synanon recorded everything. All the games, groups, sessions, all of it was taped and broadcast over the wire to the community and stored to be replayed in the future. Now here's a true Anon tip. Do not record yourself telling the community that you reign over, that you want a specific guy's ear in a jar, as Chuck did in reference to Paul Morantz. You don't want to say that someday critics of Synanon will get, quote, killed dead, physically dead, as Chuck did. You don't want to mention the guy you're going to kill repeatedly by name alongside all of this. Chuck was arrested in a trailer at a property Synanon owned in Lake Havasu, Arizona. He was, according to the assistant DA for Los Angeles, so drunk he couldn't stand, surrounded by empty bottles of Shiva's Regal. He had to be carried out. He was booked on conspiracy to commit murder. To this day, nobody really knows if Chuck himself directly ordered the Imperial Marines to put a rattlesnake in Paul Morantz's mailbox. Those who might know won't say. The madness that Chuck had within him spread outwards, with the members of his group absorbing and reflecting it back out at the world. Chuck may not have ordered that hit, but Synanon did, and Chuck was Synanon, just as Synanon was Chuck. His lawyers claimed he wasn't healthy enough to stand trial, a classic Weinstein-type defense due to his obesity and drinking problems. It seemed that the man wasn't taking his own medicine. He was eventually let off with five years probation, a fine, and an agreement that he would no longer take part in Synanon or play the game. The lawsuits piled up, and Synanon, for the first time in well over a decade, began to lose profitability. Members left, even some of the kookier square types who came in at the beginning of the decade. What's worse is they were giving interviews to newspapers describing Synanon's culture of paranoia and violence. The rattlesnake attack led to renewed interest in Synanon from the IRS. Remember, Synanon was, on paper, a tax-exempt charitable organization dedicated to the rehabilitation of drug addicts and alcoholics. The numerous recordings of this purported charity engaging in the planning and discussion of violent acts 
was not helpful in maintaining this image. The IRS audited the organization in 1979, revoked their tax-exempt status in 1982, and spent the next decade or so chipping away at the organization over their destruction of records, obstruction of investigations, and perjury. Dozens would be indicted over Synanon's cooked books. The violence had a measurable cost as well. Synanon spent millions in payouts to those they'd beaten, kidnapped, shaved, and snaked. The rancher who helped funnel punk squad children to safety was awarded a huge sum. Synanon lost their case with Time magazine. The Point Reyes Light, the teeny Tamales Bay paper, which had won a Pulitzer for its reporting on Synanon, was given a large settlement. And so Synanon continued to shrink, selling properties, hemorrhaging businesses, losing members. Diedrich ensconced himself at the Badger home base, drinking and losing his mind. He still played the game, only now he did it through his young wife calling in from a telephone. He gave television interviews while visibly drunk. By the early 1980s, it had become normal to drink at Synanon. They even held parties where getting loaded was the explicit purpose. Synanon's mission was hazy. It was a loose collection of people with nowhere to go, still desperate for Chuck's wisdom as he sunk deeper into what would later be assessed as bipolar episodes. Members weren't living communally anymore. Salaries were paid out and non-Synanon employees brought in to cook and clean. It took another decade for Synanon to truly go under. But it did go under. Reduced to living in rented trailer homes outside of Fresno, the final members went their own way in 1993. Chuck Diedrich died of heart and lung failure in 1997. He was 83 years old. His death was greeted with numerous obituaries, describing a beautiful start, a tangled middle, and a savage fall. They recounted the early success, the defiance, then the hubris, the puffed chest, and the violence. They spoke of the failures of a man to meet his own vision, the failures to be responsible to the addicts under his care, and the failures of Synanon when it came to children. Here's the thing, though. Synanon's story doesn't end in 1978, or 1982, or 1993. It doesn't end with the death of Chuck Diedrich in a double-wide trailer. Synanon lives today, under different names, under different men, in facilities all throughout America. The Synanon model, notorious for its failures when it came to children, became the way to straighten out troubled youth. The violent cult run by an unstable man, tarnished in the eyes of everyone from Time Magazine to the FBI, has been directly, if unofficially, franchised all throughout the United States and beyond. True to Chuck's vision, it is a billion-dollar industry. The behavioral modification industry, the troubled teen industry, juvenile delinquent programs, whatever you want to call them, almost every single one of the thousands that exist has lifted its program from Synanon, Many originally sprang from Synanon staffers or members who left, bringing the program with them. The acid dreams of Chuck Diedrich did not die with him. They are inflicted in the game with fists, with isolation and work details on tens of thousands of children every year. Picture this. You are 16 years old. You're a bit of a troublemaker. Maybe your grades aren't so hot. Maybe you smoke some cigarettes. You might have even gotten in some fights or been expelled from school. You could have even had sex a few times. Your parents are worried, and they reach out to your school counselor for help. They're handed a business card for an educational consultant. Educational consultants are people paid to, quote, unquote, assist students and families with educational decisions. They're usually referred to parents by counselors, administrators, sometimes even courts, their job is to recommend changes to kids' programs or curriculum and come up with new school strategies to help kids who are struggling. About 25 to 40 percent of placement referrals into behavioral modification programs come from educational consultants. But they don't do it for free. 
Like an affiliate marketing program, educational consultants get paid referral bonuses for placing kids in specific programs. Similarly, prospective parents are often given contact information for families as references. A lot of times these parents are also paid, usually through discounts on the expensive tuition, to give glowing reviews and reassurance that everything will be okay. Absolutely none of this is regulated, and no company, consultant, or third party is under any obligation whatsoever to disclose any financial relationship at any point. Now, you're asleep in your bed, four o'clock in the morning, when a couple of men barge in and wake your ass up. You don't know what the hell is going on. Your mom's there in the background giving you a weak smile and some pathetic reassurances while the men grab you by the arms and put you in a car. Maybe they tell you where you're going, and maybe they don't. If you run, they'll chase you. But the point is, you don't run. They're here to terrify you. These men are escorts. The escort industry exists to transport children from their homes to facilities within the troubled teen industry or behavioral modification umbrella. It's a silent part of a massive network, the subject of very few investigations compared to schools or wilderness programs. One of the most prominent escort companies was Bill Lane and Associates. Bill Lane was a hardcore early Synanon devotee who left in the 1970s to develop the program at SeaDoo. The escort industry, which transports children across state lines against their will, is an integral part of this process. It's also, for many children, the most traumatic experience of their lives. So the escort puts you in the back of the car, or maybe sits next to you on an airplane, and takes you where he's ordered. For the majority of kids, that's a wilderness program. This is the type of program that parents are often referred to by the educational consultant. They're marketed as boot camps, the kind of tough love, short-term interventions that will help wayward kids get back on track. Wilderness programs are intended as something like a system shock for children, to jolt them out of their past reality into their new one, Hard work, sweat, fear, insane orders from unaccountable adults. It's a grim industry. So before I was sent to Monarch, the escorts actually took me to a wilderness program. The one I went to, Sagewalk, was in the Oregon desert. Two months of trudging up and down the same dirt road, collecting firewood, and having diarrhea while a guy named Cougar yelled at me. Three years after I left, the program was shut down for the death of a child named Sergei Blackenstein. A lot of people may be familiar with the name Outward Bound, or maybe the drill sergeants yelling in the faces of -of out-of-control teens on Sally Jesse Raphael. These programs got heavy promotion from daytime talk shows in the 80s and 90s. The schools are often in remote areas, such as the Utah or Oregon wilderness, often employing very young college students in charge of what are purportedly unstable children. The kids will often face hunger, injury, lack of medical care, or treatment for mental illness. And for most kids, these camps are just the first stop. As you may have guessed, wilderness programs are often paid what the industry literally calls bounties, referral bonuses to long-term boarding facilities. Many employ what they call advisors, basically salespeople, to call parents and stoke their fears about their child's future. Usually, it goes something like this. I'm sorry, I know this is tough to hear, but we've seen this before. You need to get your child in as soon as possible. If you don't, they will end up in jail or a mental hospital, or just dead in the gutter. You have to come to terms with the fact that you've lost control as a parent and you need help as much as your kid does. Look, this is what we do. We can take your application right now, we can expedite the process, but we need to get your child in a controlled environment where we can impose discipline. And we need to do it quickly, before it's too late and they are lost for good. You know they are in danger. You know you have nothing left to give them. Let us take it from here. When did you start trusting your dad again? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, uh, I really tried to like, when I got back, I was like so thankful that I didn't 
you know, I wasn't going to jail and that he wasn't sending me back that like, I really just kind of didn't bring it up again. Really? I was, yeah. I was, I mean, I, I was just like, I'm going to do my own thing. Like, and at that point, like, you know, for this funny, funnily enough for the rest of my teenage years, I had a pretty, um, I, I, I kind of just did whatever I wanted. Cause you guys are pretty close now. Yeah. We're really close now. But I imagine yeah. like, I don't know, like as we've been going through all this, a thing that's been hard for me is like trying to put myself in that like mindset of parents that I, I just, I don't know. I mean, that process of acceptance or understanding or whatever to move past with him. Like I imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. Really tough. For me, like a lot of the times when something like that happens, like I just try to forget about it and pretend it didn't happen. You know what I mean? Rather than dealing with it. And that's really what I did for a lot of my childhood. And then I moved out and I was like, well, I'm on I'm like, my, my, my dad and I weren't really close um, in a lot of ways. Uh, and I was like, you know, I moved out when I was 17, uh, you know, just a couple of years after I got back. And I'm like, I'm just going to do my own thing, you know? And, uh, you know, I didn't have, a, I mean, I you know, saw him and stuff, but it wasn't like a lot of communication. Um, it was really like when I turned, um, turn. I mean, it was just when I got older and like, I was really in a lot of trouble with drugs. Uh, I owed a lot of people, some of whom were kind of dangerous people, a lot of money. Um, and I had like, so I burned all my connections. Um, I burned everyone I could rip off. I burned, I mean, I was, I burned a lot of, I burned a lot down. Um, you know, my, my dad helped me get into detox. Um, you know, he really helped me, which took a few times, but, uh, he really helped me out a lot when I really, really, really needed help. And when like I had, you know, he should not have, or not, he should not have, I'm really glad he did. But like when a lot of people would have been like, no, like don't talk to me. And I was banned from the house for a long time, but like after that, but it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean that, you know, I'm older now, you know, and I, and I get like being a parent's hard. Um, you know, I, I wasn't really that bad of a kid, but I mean, my, you know, there's been, you know, there's been a lot of stuff in my family. Um, you know, my, my mom, a lot of, a lot of issues with her. And, uh, and I think my dad was just scared. And I think that like the edu my, you know, it's like we described, like, you know, my dad talked to an educational consultant and they were like, this will help your fucking dumbass kid. Cause I got really bad grades. Uh, this will help your dumbass kid, like, you know, be more disciplined. And my probation officer was harping on it. And like, it was just like, yeah, I think my dad was just scared and they really preyed on that fear. And one thing they would do at Monarch, and this is something that I will like never, ever, ever fucking forgive these people for, is they would make you repeat over and over and over again. And it would make your parents repeat it too. This was like the mantra or mantra, whatever. It's like, if you weren't here, you would be dead. And so like their whole, like the whole like uh, belief system at Monarch revolved around the fact that like you had to convince yourself and your parents had to be convinced that if, if not for this like minuscule, like this little miracle that happened to you, like this, this twist of fate that you ended up at this place in Montana, you would be in a fucking graveyard. And it's like, looking back, it is ridiculous to, you know, like, I, I, no, that's not true, you know, like for almost any kid there. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's something, you know, you tell a parent, you look a fucking mother in the eyes who's like scared about her 15 year old daughter or something. And you're like, you, I know, like I've worked with kids for 20 years. Your little daughter would be dead right now if she wasn't here. And you say that enough, like they're going to believe you. You know what I mean? No one wants to take that. Like parents don't want to take that chance that like, oh my, like, you know, my kid could be dead. Like, well, maybe it's not true, but it's like, I, you have to act like it is. And so they do, it's really insidious with a lot of these schools. Um, you know, they exist to keep kids in beds and to keep the place full. And so they'll do whatever they have to do to get to that, to that point. And the thing is that drives you crazy too, because like I would repeat that over and over and over. And I'd have these, like, I was in the back of my head. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like I smoked weed like three times. Like I, th I get drunk off like half of Bud Light. Like, I don't think that I would be dead right now, but like, Every day you're repeating this stuff, and yeah. it's like it's it's it does a fucking number on your psyche too. I was gonna say, what does that? I mean, what does that do to you? I mean, I have you start internalizing it. Well, it's funny because like it's it's weird. Like my like sometimes it's like I have these flashes. Like I'm you know I'm 14 years old, like digging this stump out, 
on like day 10 of work punishment in the winter, like trying to bust through the permafrost in fucking Montana with a shovel. And then I'm like, you know, later on a teenager and like, I just have these flashes of just like where I am, like, you know, like taking a bus or like, you know, and then later I got into drugs and then the war stuff. And like, it just like, I kind of like look back and I'm like, I, th I know these things are all connected somehow. I don't really know what the thread that connects them is. But like, I do know one thing that I felt during every single one of those periods is this like tremendous sense of guilt. Um, and guilt, I know from like, I left Monarch and I, I left all those other people behind, right? And like, I don't think they would think of it that way. But like, I left and like, all those other kids had to stay there. Um, even among like a lot of kids I was friends with when I was younger, like a lot of those people are dead now. Um, you know, because of ODs and suicide, all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, I, it's like I left a lot of that behind. You know, I was a drug addict. Like, a lot of those people are dead. Uh, and, like, I got out of it, you know, fighting, war, all that stuff. Like, most of those people are dead. Like, not a lot, but, like, the majority of those people are dead. I'm not. Um, and it's like I have this, like, compounding guilt from all of that. And it's not just guilt from, like, like me being able, like being lucky or whatever, or like whatever the reason is for getting out of these things. But it's also like I have these other guilt, like guilt over women um, is a major thing for me that I, th I think you know. Like, and I know a lot of that stems from fucking this fucked up shit that we were taught at Monarch, like on how to, like, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's something that I grapple with a lot. This like guilt over not, um, you know, not being able to, like someone's asked me to do it if I can't to do something, if I can't do it, I feel insane about it. And all of that, like I can really trace back, like all of that had its genesis at Monarch and from all that fucking funky shit that they made us do. I mean, all of these things that have like really, really just like sunk their claws into my life and just like gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. And I, I'm aware of them and I, I do a lot to get past them, but like that shit's there. Like it's, it's like, you know, it's like a splinter, you know, it's like, I can't get out. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I yeah. And so all of that, I can just trace back to Monarch and it's all stayed with me. So what started as a six-week boot camp quickly turns into an eight-month, then a 12-month, then an 18-month, and soon a three-year placement boarding school. The true length of the typical stay isn't advertised for a reason. It's much easier to persuade a parent to send their kid away for a couple weeks than to suggest that what their child needs is to be separated from their family and their friends for several years. So, an escort picks you up from the wilderness. You know what's coming some amount of time spent in a school which you really only know from rumor and vague reputation. Maybe you're going to a Sea-Doo style facility, a work farm with intensive therapy ripped straight from Synanon. Maybe you're going to a lockdown like Provo Canyon, where you're in for years of standing in a fugue state in between shots of Haldol in your ass. Or maybe you're being put on a plane to the Bahamas, that sounds nice, to a place with a friendly name where you will be starved, beaten, and locked in a box. The history of behavioral modification facilities for children in the modern era is a sordid one. Even proponents of the industry should be appalled by the sheer volume of reports involving sadistic abuse of children, systemic violations of their rights, and mental trauma inflicted. Most of these programs last from a year and a half to two and a half years, but many of them are intended for the children to stay until they turn 18. As with Synanon's punk squad and juvenile facilities, some children are remanded to these programs by courts or psychiatric professionals. Almost every single one of these programs took a direct line from Synanon. One of the earliest descendants of Synanon, called The Seed, was based in Florida. The Seed was founded by a failed comedian named Arthur Barker to help troubled teens and experiment with the types of behavioral modification he witnessed in his visits to Synanon's facility in New York City. He was able to secure a sizable grant from the now defunct Law Enforcement Assistant Administration, the LEAA. Its goal was to determine whether the attack therapy methods used at Synanon would help reduce childhood drug use and could be used to combat delinquency. What he created 
was a psychedelic nightmare that drove thousands of children nearly insane. Unlike in Sinanon, where the game was punctuated with daily routines, work, socialization, even dances, at the seed there was the game and nothing else. Renamed Raps, these game sessions took place every day, from 10 in the morning to 10 at night, for up to a month. Children were made to stand before their peers, castigated, ridiculed, mocked. Many of them had never done drugs. They simply had a, quote, druggy attitude. False confessions became the rule. The more you confessed to, the quicker you could advance through the program and leave. Some children went mad. In an echo of Philip K. Dick's Vallis, one got up from his chair, ran full speed at plate glass windows, and burst through to the ground below. The seed eventually lost its federal grant money, having never produced any of the research that it had promised. A 1974 congressional report, titled Individual Rights and Federal Role in Behavior Modification, directly compared the seed's methods to the brainwashing techniques allegedly used on POWs during the Korean War. But the larger issue is why a man with absolutely no pedigree was given tens of thousands of dollars by the federal government to experiment on unwilling teenagers. Congress forbade the LEAA from funding any similar research in the future. The seed was forced to give up working with kids and shifted its focus onto adults before shriveling up and dying a couple decades later. But if you'll forgive an unavoidable turn of phrase, what was planted at the seed blossomed into something that came to be known as straight incorporated. It is exactly as sinister as it sounds, In 1976, a wealthy Florida businessman and Republican Party bigwig named Mel Sembler opened up a program staffed almost entirely by former seed employees. He received funding from the exact same federal agency that Congress had just forbidden from funding research on teenagers and opened the frontiers to even more brutal methods of torturing children. Straight Inc. is notorious now for its brutal beatings, torture involving feces, public humiliation, and rape of students. Nevertheless, the program was hailed as a success. The Synanon program had been refined for teenagers, and like Synanon, violence was seen as a perfectly acceptable response to any perceived delinquency on the part of minors. Sembler was hugely integrated into the Florida Republican Party, something that allowed Straight Inc. to continue its abuses unmolested by the bureaucracy or any kind of welfare checks on the children. Later, of course, it was revealed that pressure from Sembler and his friends in politics prevented any kind of intervention into what was happening at Strait. This sort of political pressure on regulators continues to this day throughout the troubled teen industry. Strait Inc. saw visits from Princess Diana and Ronald Reagan, and the Bush family were huge backers of both Sembler and his program. Even after the organization was exposed for its massive abuses, after paying out tens of millions in damages, Sembler's star continued to rise. Just after Strait's closure, Sembler was appointed ambassador to Australia and later Italy. Another prominent member of Strait's board was appointed ambassador to Spain. Strait Incorporated is now known as Drug Free America, an NGO that works with the UN as consultants. Provo Canyon is, bar none, the most notorious facility for teenagers in the United States. It's well known now after the recent documentary on Paris Hilton, which featured Provo Canyon as well as a Sea-Doo facility. Provo really is a nightmare. I've spoken to multiple people who attended the program. One said she saw the outdoors only three times in two years. Students are injected with what they call booty juice, which is really Haldol, anti-schizophrenia medication that dulls the senses and puts students into catatonic states. Synanon influenced Provo, too. The school, like almost every other similar facility, subjected children to its own version of the game. And Provo, in turn, influenced two of its prominent staffers to start their own network of facilities, the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools, a.k.a. WASP. WASP was an international network of black sites where children were tortured, raped, and sometimes killed. 
Kids were subjected to bizarre mixtures of synanon therapies and seminars borrowed from LifeSpring, a self-help cult. It's hard to fully track the organization. An overlapping network of shell companies and corporate fronts masked the true scope of the network, but it had facilities everywhere from the Czech Republic to Jamaica, and of course in Utah. In the troubled teen industry, if a facility gets shut down, it might reopen the next day in the same building, with the same staff, the same children, the same program, just under a different name. For example, a WASP facility called Dundee Ranch in Puerto Rico was shut down by child welfare authorities before reopening under the name Pillars of Hope. A program called Kids of Greater Salt Lake was closed and reopened on the same day as Lifeline Incorporated. Cross Creek Academy was shut down before reopening as Youth Foundation Success Academy. Sometimes it's not just the facilities getting new names. It's the owners. Steve Cardisano, often called the godfather of wilderness therapy, is one of the more notorious examples. After the preventable death of a girl at his Challenger Wilderness program in Utah, and the deaths of two other children at programs run by his former employees, he was barred from working with children in the state. His next venture, a wilderness program in Hawaii, saw him banned from working there as well. So he went abroad, changing his name, opening programs in Samoa, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands, and leaving a trail of abuse and trauma in his wake. None of this was secret. To the owners of these programs, a tough love guy like Cardassano was an asset. WASP programs were stricter than strict. Children were told to look at the ground when moving, were not to speak unless spoken to, were starved and restrained when they were perceived to be acting out by staff. And the staff were, almost to a man, totally unqualified, uncredentialed, and often criminals forbidden from working with children by the U.S. government. The troubled teen industry has a similar view on credentials as Synanon did. That is, credentials were an unnecessary roadblock required by ignorant regulators and only served to get in the way. It was a free-for-all environment where adults could do whatever they pleased with children. At almost every behavioral modification facility, communication is monitored. Children are not allowed to speak with their parents outside of the presence of a staff member who stands ready to hang up the call if the child should start detailing their abuse. Letters both to and from parents are read by staff. Parents, too, are told that their children are manipulative liars who are just trying to come home. WASP even had a program, designed by a longtime LifeSpring employee, that manipulated parents into cutting off contact with their children if they chose to leave the program after they turned 18. It's hard to stomach reading much about WASP, but so much of the program sounds familiar to me. There's attack therapy, modeled off of the game. The seminars they held were straight out of Synanon, reenactments of childhood trauma, public confessions of minor infractions, girls made to wear signs that said things like shameful slut. But the trauma only compounds at these programs. The trauma of being picked up and whisked away by strangers in the middle of the night. The trauma of isolation, punishment. The trauma of bearing your sins, and inventing new ones in front of people who are forced by the program to betray you. It's an industry that is constantly at the frontier of creating new psychological tortures to inflict on children who have no recourse, no appeal, no lawyer, no way to seek help. These methods are used over and over in behavioral modification programs for teens, overseen by unlicensed adults with no training who are making millions of dollars. And they do make millions of dollars. Wasp alone made hundreds of millions in revenue each year. Wasp owner Robert Litchfield and his brothers raked in a lot of additional revenue by owning not just schools, but also companies that were in charge of billing parents, educational services, construction services, even emergency social services. It's not just Wasp. Almost every school is like this to some degree. Many of them even have their own escort agencies to take kids to and from the facilities. WASP owned and operated schools in multiple countries before most of them were shut down owing to deaths, rapes, and countless reports of child abuse. There are survivors groups and a website with resources for those who attended the program. WASP as such no longer exists, though its programs continue under different names. 
with the owners of WASP receiving money through payment processing, transportation, and other services. Robert Litchfield continues to get rich. If the schools themselves close, the program might be brought by staff elsewhere. SIDU, like we mentioned in the last episode, came straight from Synanon via Mel Wasserman and Bill Lane. When SIDU was shut down, a former staffer, Patrick McKenna, opened his own school, obscuring links to the disgraced program he had just left. He brought with him Timothy Earle, the son of a former SIDU school director, and Steve Rookie, who was rumored to be married to Mel Wasserman's daughter. They called their school Monarch. Monarch functioned like so many of these other schools, by convincing parents their children would die without the program, and then traumatizing as many children as they could under the guise of helping them. That's where I went. To be clear, everything said about WASP and SEDU schools applies to the entire industry. It's estimated that around 50,000 American teenagers go through these programs every year. This is an industry that operates with virtual impunity. I think it's important to note that WASP, Provo, the original wilderness programs, so many of these came from Utah, and many of them have close links to Utah politicians, especially Mitt Romney. WASP owner Litchfield was the finance director of Romney's 2008 presidential campaign. I contributed, too, in my own way. The wilderness program I attended, Sagewalk, was owned by Aspen Education Group, a subsidiary of CRC Health, itself a subsidiary of Bain Capital. Mitt Romney had been the CEO of Bain, and he still receives a sizable payout from the company. Aspen Education Group, like WASP, owned a huge number of facilities, but most of them are closed now. Many are closed because teenagers died under their care. There's a reason these programs are in out-of-the-way places. Oftentimes, behavioral modification facilities will be the biggest industry in a town, or even an entire county. SIDU alone employed hundreds in Bonner County, giving them well-paying jobs in what was termed the educational field. On the Montana-Idaho border, where the Monarch School was located, there's a cluster of schools with hundreds of children. Some of the towns around the schools have fewer than 200 people living in them. The schools provide a huge economic boon to the area. There have been attempts at the federal level to regulate behavioral modification programs and the troubled teen industry, but almost all have died on the vine, facing stiff opposition from GOP lawmakers with ties to the industry. Congressman George Miller introduced the Stop Child Abuse in Residential Programs for Teens Act in 2007, which would allow federal regulation of wilderness programs, boot camps, therapeutic boarding schools, and behavior modification programs aimed at adolescents, and would prohibit many of the more egregious acts of punishment these programs employed. They'd also mandate inspection every two years. Congress rejected it, over and over, most recently in 2017. The bill was precipitated by the famous, and I believe only, report by the Government Accountability Office, or GAO. Other bills that would prohibit the use of seclusion, physical or chemical restraints against children by schools that benefit from federal education money have also died. States where the schools are located aren't usually keen to pass any oversight laws either. The large tax base and the jobs that the schools bring in are usually more than enough to keep regulators silent. There's only two men tasked with overseeing every school in Idaho, which contains a huge number of facilities. The school owners, too, seek to combat regulation. A headline in the Missoulian reads, 12 years, 58 complaints, zero sanctions at Montana residential programs. The article, by Seaborn Larson and Lucy Tompkins, details how Montana regulators wanted legal power to monitor the massive number of residential programs in the state. But school owners got there first, putting their own bill forward through Representative Paul Clark, a Democrat who is also the owner of Galena Ridge, which the Missoulian describes as a residential therapeutic facility for teenagers. Instead of any kind of regulatory body that deals with children or education, the bill assembled a board composed of residential school owners and put them in charge of regulating the industry. At a hearing for the bill, Patrick McKenna of the Monarch School, quote, 
cautioned that media exploitation of specific incidents often causes a state to overreact with legislation that is not well thought out and does not fit the needs of the industry. The bill that was passed exempted Monarch and several other schools owned by board members from oversight because they were licensed through trade organizations. I remember no inspections during my time at Monarch. There's at least a half dozen of these trade organizations throughout the country. All of them were founded and are run by the owners of the schools. They all purport to have high standards, but absolutely no requirement for the schools to actually meet those standards, zero enforcement mechanisms, and no way to discipline any offenders. They put out journals and commission studies in order to make the schools look good. The Missoulian quotes one as saying, We cherish autonomy. We can act, unfettered by boards or trustees or elected officials. Very few of the people who run these schools are ever brought before a judge. One exception is Ben Train, the owner of Midwest Academy, a WASP school, who was charged with sexual assault of a minor, sexual exploitation of a minor by a counselor, and child endangerment. He was accused of buying female students lingerie and making them model underwear for him as part of, quote, body image therapy. He was convicted, but almost no one else has been. But remember Dundee Ranch from earlier? Its owner, Narvin Litchfield, the brother of WASP founder Robert Litchfield, was arrested and charged by authorities in Costa Rica after a girl was able to make it home, telling her parents of the abuse at the facility and how children were forced to sign declarations saying everything was fine or else be sent to an even worse place in Jamaica. Three judges declared him innocent of all charges. They could not prove he ordered the abuse. Narvin was released. He went on to own Seneca Ranch, which was on the site of Carolina Springs Academy, a WASP school that had previously been shut down. He's been in the business ever since. As you can imagine, going through these programs inflicts deep psychological wounds on children. These kids aren't just emotionally abused. At many facilities, it's physical too. There are numerous reports of children beaten and restrained, of sexual abuse and forced drug use. Kids are subjected to pain humiliation, intimidation, ridicule, threats of unusual punishment, and interference with basic living functions like eating, sleeping, and going to the bathroom. At Elan School, boxing was used as a so-called form of therapy, where students were forced to box each other with gloves and everything until one of them was finally knocked out or forced to give up. One man was found guilty of murder based on a confession he gave in the ring at Elon. Michael Skakel was in the boxing ring at Elon when he confessed to murdering his neighbor Martha, a confession he says he gave to make the beating stop. Afterwards, Michael was forced to wear a sign for six weeks that said, I am an arrogant rich brat. Confront me on why I killed my friend Martha. The confession was then used to convict him of the murder, though it was obviously obtained through force. In 1998, Mr. Skakel wrote that while he was at Elon, quote, I was subjected to a level of torture deemed unacceptable even for prisoners of war. A lawyer for Elon told the New York Times, quote, People who fought in wars have nightmares too. Some wars are worth fighting. Some children are sent to timeout rooms, basically isolation chambers. Kids spend hours and hours in four-by-four storage closets, sometimes even dog cages. At Tranquility Bay, one student reached a record. She spent 18 months in solitary confinement. Oftentimes, restraints are used. Over 70 kids have died specifically due to the use of physical restraints at these facilities. The use of restraints varies. For some, it was being forced face down on the ground with three or four or maybe six adults on top, two at the arms, one on the legs, and at least one with their knee in a child's back, smashing the tiny body into the floor. For others, it meant duct tape. Duct tape wrists behind backs, or duct tape mouths, eyes, and ears. 
Some were wrapped burrito-style in a blanket, so tight they would scream and start hyperventilating. One victim was restrained over 250 times, with two of those restraints lasting each time over 12 hours. That child died in the program. Given the lack of oversight and regulation, coupled with the fact that these facilities are often extremely remote, insular, and opaque, not to mention raking a lot of money for a lot of people at the local, county, and state level, it is difficult to put together exactly how many kids have died. One blog has accounted for at least 185 dead children. The GAO tried to put together a comprehensive list during their 2007 investigation into the industry. They couldn't. There just isn't any agency comprehensively collecting names or cases or allegations or statistics. These kids, even in death, fall through the cracks. The GAO did look at a few of the deaths that had been reported. Of the cases they looked at, causes of death included dehydration, heat stroke, acute infection resulting from a perforated ulcer, severed artery, massive head trauma, hyperthermia, and suicide. 15-year-old Phil Newell from the infamous Elon School died from a brain aneurysm. After complaining to the staff that he had a headache, he was forced into the therapeutic boxing ring and severely beaten by other teenagers. He collapsed, spasmed on the mat, and turned blue. Eventually, staff members dragged him away. He was dead within a day. One kid killed himself six days into his program. He was sent to boarding school after being diagnosed with clinical depression and making multiple suicide attempts. He was having trouble in school, and the parents, in consultation with their child's psychiatrist, were recommended an educational consultant to help them find a school that could be more sensitive to their son's problems. The consultant told the family that they specialized in matching troubled teens with appropriate treatment programs and quickly recommended a $23,000 West Virginia boarding school. In the first phase, a survival training session, the child deliberately cut himself four times from wrist to elbow using a pocket knife that was issued him by the school. After cutting himself, the kid ran to a counselor and showed them what he did, crying and begging the staff member to take away the knife so he couldn't hurt himself again. He pleaded with the counselor to call his mother and tell her he needed to come home. The staff member then pulled the crying, bloody child aside, spoke with him, and, after eliciting a promise that he would never hurt himself again, gave the knife back to the kid. The next day, the owner of the program and a counselor visited the campsite. During this visit, the field staff recounted the self-inflicted injury and how the child begged for help not to hurt himself. The owner told the field staff to ignore him, that he was being manipulative in an attempt to be sent home. That night, the child hanged himself. The school waited four hours to notify the family about the suicide. When the owner of the program finally called the parents, according to the father, the owner said, there was nothing we could do. All right, so Brace. Yeah. <laughs> We're sitting here at the old Best Western in Pondere, Idaho. That we are, yeah. Um, and I think that maybe we should backtrack a little bit and talk about how we got here. Because basically, you know, we've been working on the series for a while. A while. And in the kind of middle of that, we took a little vacation. Yes. And then we came back and the three of us had a conversation where you basically said, okay, I've got an idea for how we end this series. Yeah, well, it's, it's, so that, vac like when, it, when we took a break or whatever, yeah. for like I, I actually, I went a little nuts mm. during that time. Mm. I did not go far from my home. Um, and uh, I was, because uh, I, I got a little, you know, I get with this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, we're kind of working our way through, like, the episodes. And, and, you know, I'm dealing with more, like, getting more to, like, the present day stuff, like the, 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 the troubled teen industry stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember from when we did that episode a long time ago, the Paris Hilton one, um, you know, I had these notes on Monarch and Patrick and stuff. Uh, 
But I really like, there was like something missing there. I didn't really, there's like not a lot on the guy, you know, like he kind of disappeared after after the school closed in, in, in 2017 because um, he got sued by a bunch of parents, uh, ended up having to pay out about a million dollars. Looks like he was siphoning funds off. In fact, it's almost assured that he was siphoning funds off. Um, having these board meetings in Hawaii with his, just the board of like his wife. Um, and like, you know, and eventually like even after the school closed, like just like stole, like, you know, took all the vehicles and all that kind of stuff. Use it as a piggy bank, essentially. Um, and uh, and kind of like really went under the radar, like like low profile after that. And so I was, uh, I don't really, I want to burn nobody, but I, you know, there's a person I had read some work by who had done some writing about Patrick, uh, you know, like a real, not a wingnut, like a real legit person. Um, and, uh, and I emailed them, and I'd emailed them before uh, when we did that other episode, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I gave it another shot. I'm an yeah. incessant emailer sometimes. Uh, and really just like an hour later, uh, you know, he writes me back and he gives me this, like 40, I mean, you've seen it, like 40 page PDF, yeah. all this stuff. Um, and I'm like incredible, you know. I start, I start looking at you know, fucking satellite images. I start kind of look, looking how this guy's been living, looking at his properties. I mean, the guy owns a lot of property, as as yeah, he owns a lot of property, um, and uh, an expensive real estate. And and about an hour after I get that email with all of Patrick's information in it, I get a Facebook message, and you know, 32, not on Facebook very often. But there's like survivors, you know, they call themselves survivors groups, which, uh, you know, of different kinds, including for Monarch that's, that's on there. And I was sort of looking for stuff on, on the school one on Patrick. So I'm logged into Facebook on my computer and I get a message from this lady. Uh, and she's like, hey, I'm a producer for, for 60 Minutes Australia. Mm. Do you know how I can get in touch with Patrick McKenna? This is an hour after I get the fucking initial dump of Patrick McKenna's stuff. So naturally I think this guy must have told her to get in contact yeah, with yeah, me. Yeah. Maybe he's laundering it through me, whatever, happy to do it. And I ask, I ask her, I was like, did anyone tell you to contact me? She's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, nobody told you to, to, to message me. And she's like, no, we're working on this. If you Google Patrick McKenna Monarch School, the first thing that comes up is your podcast. Cause I <laughs> tweeted about him. Um, and, uh, and she's like, yeah, I'm just doing, I'm just at work right now. And uh, I talked to her for a long time, um, and all the while I'm like, what an what an astounding kind of coincidence, like that this is within an hour of each other. Like you know, I, mm. I don't spend every day thinking about this guy or nothing. You know, like I just started really to do like delve into some research on him, and then both of these things happen like that. And you're a big Jung guy, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that. Like the, like, the, like the, I think it's important. And some people go a little crazy with this stuff. Is it synchronicity? Yeah, I'm just like if it's if if these things happen, it doesn't necessarily mean something, but it means you should look for something, right? Mm-hmm. Or like to me at least, I'm like it it, it 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 indicates that like that you're tapped in to some kind of unconscious there, right? Mm-hmm. And not to get too funky with it, you know, as I'm not literally thinking like I'm um, you know talking to the unconscious. I'm just like, well, that that's that's certainly an astounding coincidence that I should fucking I could I should pay attention to. And uh, that night, I go out and I see my buddy, uh, my buddy Will's band. So, you know, it's kind of playing some sort of punk music, I guess, at this bar. And uh, and I'm uh, I'm walking out with my buddy Walker and uh, to smoke a cigarette. And this girl is sort of walking in, and we make eye contact, and I'm like. She looks familiar, and she kind of does that like squigged up face too, like oh, this person looks familiar. But I don't. I'm like, I, I guess I can't place it. And I go outside. I'm smoking a cigarette. She comes out, and she's like, I don't think you remember me, but we knew each other when we were like 13, my twin and I. And um, you know, we remember when you got sent away to you know to Monarch. And I was like, how'd she know I went to Monarch? And uh, and then she's like, yeah, because when you ran away, my sister and I. We got kidnapped, and my sister, my twin sister, went to Monarch. And I got to tell you, this happening one day for me, yeah. like this, this really like blew my shit out. I'm like shaking, smoking this cig. Not really, but internally shaking. My blood is hot, and uh, and I, I ask her about. It. I'm like, oh my god, like can I? I need to talk to your sister because her sister and I are like our overlap 
was like, if I had been there for like a month later, she would have been there at the same time as me. Mm. Like really just like traded. And her sister ran too. And, um, and, and also made it out. And so this like really fucking blew my mind. And I'm walking that night. I, I tend to walk a lot. And, uh, and uh, I'm walking. I'm thinking like, what does this mean? Like really doing, I'm doing what I'm doing right now, which is putting my thumb into the palm of the opposite hand and really rubbing mm -mm. it. In fact, I have a callus now because of that. But, um, and I think, oh my God. Well, I, I, Patrick McKenna is the linkage of all of, all of this. Right? Like, mm -hmm. none of these conversations would have happened without Patrick McKenna. And I, I, should, uh, I should go talk to him and uh, maybe ask him a couple questions about some of this stuff. And so, um, you know, you, 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 you both were immediately amenable to it, which was very nice. Um, and... Uh, and we all, well, we plan this out. We, you know, I, 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 uh, a, a private detective friend of the show helped with some other information, um, and uh, and some other sources did as well. And so now um, I get to introduce the two of you to, to beautiful Sandpoint or Bonner County, Idaho. Uh, as you can see, it's uh, it's very dark and, and um, smoky out there because these fucking fires. And uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think there's really nothing else to do but, but get out there and, and go talk to them. On the next episode of The Game, the story of Synanon, The Return. This series is produced by Truanon. Exclusive episodes available at patreon.com slash trueanonpod. Your hosts are Liz Franzak and Brace Belden. The music was written and recorded by me, Young Chomsky. See you next time.